Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and to the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoin. So for the first episode of 2021, I'm going to go into the BTG vaults and uh, share an episode that I recorded with Andy Young. Andy and I spoke back in June, before harvest, before the fires. He is the founder of St. Reginald Parish and Marigny, which I think makes some of the most delicious wines in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. The wines are so good, and Andy is so rad that I'd like to think that our conversation is what we in the biz like to call evergreen content. Andy talks about his approach to carbonic maceration in this episode. He also discusses this trend toward grafting non-pinot varieties to these vineyards in Oregon. And towards the end of the episode, we start to talk about his past as a professional musician and even got a chance to debate the merits of Frank Ocean's discography. I know this past week has been brutal, um, but I hope you enjoy this episode. What's up, man? How are you? What's going on? How are you? I'm doing all right. Just finished some gardening. Did a little little bit of farming here in Tejas. Just put some uh, zucchini seeds into the ground, and hopefully those will start producing some yeah, gorge. Yeah, you should have zucchini there by like in the next 48 hours, right? Like yeah. it's like 95 degrees right. there, so it's going to just whoop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I looked at the forecast, and I think we've got some consistent 90 plus degree days ahead of us. Man, so. that's crazy. It's barely broken 60 here. Oh, really? Yeah, I get like frazzled nerves when I see um, Robert Clay Vineyard, you know, on uh, yeah. on Instagram right now. And they've got clusters that are, you know, fully formed, almost at berry touch. And uh, and our stuff hasn't even flowered yet. Um, That's crazy. You know, but he, <laughs> he gives me panic attacks. It's a totally different vibe out here. You know, they're harvesting, you know, sometimes middle of summer. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, just about like, I, I think that, you know, uh, mid-July was when we were going to, I was actually going to be there on my birthday last year, which is, oh, man. yeah, middle of July. You know, when um, we we talked about this a little bit because uh, over text message the other day, because I mentioned that um, originally, laser cat. yeah, laser cat um, was uh, born out of a three-way project that was happening between um, me and and Krista and... Um, Ricky. Ricky. That would have been sick. So Krista, right, of Zaffa Wines um, in Vermont, and then Ricky of Altamarfa mm-hmm. in West Texas. Yeah. Meeting of the Miles. We had all become buddies. You know, Ricky was uh, following me on instagram and vice versa uh, and i've been uh super interested in texas grape growing and um what people are doing down there and as especially as you see people sort of moving towards maybe the the natural end of the spectrum yeah um or at least considering different ways of looking at uh farming and grape growing down there mm-hmm. you know um I think it, it seems like the younger generation obviously is less concerned with, um, oh, we went to Napa and now we want to like essentially make that same yeah. vibe happen here. Um, I think may, maybe people are more interested in finding out what their actual voice is in the thing. And so even if the varietals are still Bordeaux uh, in some cases, 
um, they're looking at it through a different lens. Um, and that's was the first time you connected with Ricky in person. Uh, was that at wild world? Yeah. I, well, you know, actually I'm not even sure that they were there. Yeah, actually, if I don't our, know if Ricky was there. I know, I know, Krista was, but uh, yeah, I mean, Krista was there, and we had met before. Dan McLaughlin was there. Yeah, Regan was there from Southold. It was the so. first time I had met Dan, and I think it was the first time I had met Regan. Um, although I knew who Regan was and had had his wines, both the Long Island stuff and the uh, the Texas stuff. Were, were the was Southold Long Island before? Yeah, they were. Uh, n- what is it, North Fork? Yeah, I mean they're uh, Long Island. the same. It's the same vineyards that Floral Terrines has now. Uh, some of that. Yeah, stuff. I think he was working. Yeah, he was working with like Lagrine. He was making kind of like Lambrusco style wine, which was pretty cool. He had some cool shit that he was doing up there. Yeah, and you know his project in Texas, you know, loomed uh, large for me as far as you know. Rumor has it that there's this guy up on the hill that's got a bunch of concrete eggs and is dry farming head trained vines. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, what? And, yeah. you know, you meet him and he's just such an inspirational dude. It's awesome. He's like so chill, like super cool dude. And his piquette that he made, we um, no, it's fire. We brought that in. Yeah, we brought that in at the wine bar and did it on, on tap. And it was it was super tasty. It's so. fire. That was actually the first time I had piquette um was regan's and man i was just like what is this this is so amazing it's so good i I think it's out of the the cats that i've had so far um his is the best that i've had i really liked i tasted it at wild world it was the one from old westminster abbey i think Mm -hmm. they're the ones out of maryland right yeah yeah, yeah, I didn't get the taste theirs. I haven't tried theirs yet. So I mean, I like the idea of Piquette, right? It's sustainable. You're using grape must to, you know, get kind of a second life out of that. So something quaffable, easy to drink. Yeah, I think the Coors Banquet beer of of the wine world. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely we made a hundred cases this year. Oh, well, you did? When I when I say this year, I mean, uh, uh, you know, my year essentially starts in September. <laughs> I view a year as like yeah. September through September, it seems like these days. But um, uh, yeah, we made 100 cases. We made it from Sparkle Motion Pumice, um, or I made it from Sparkle Motion Pumice. I didn't actually have an intern this year. I had some friends come around occasionally, but I made nearly 5,000 cases on my own in 2019, which was a beast. Sparkle Motion almost. is mostly Pinot Noir, right? It's Blanc de Noir Pinot, or have you switched yeah, up the... Uh... Uh, it's, yeah, it's been just Pinot for the last few years. Um, in 2016, I actually made, uh, some Blanc de Blanc base and ended up using some of that base in. That was for Blancish, right? Yeah. So Blancish was originally intended to be sparkling wine. And, um, I had made Pinot Noir base and I made Chardonnay base and then the Tiny Dancer Chardonnay wine, the pick for that, um, you know, I'd picked for sparkling. And then about a week and a half later, went back to pick uh, for still wine. And the pH in the vineyard had shifted to the point where it needed a barrel of the sparkling base to correct it. Or at mm. least that's how I look at it. Yeah, You know what I mean? A lot of people would just say, oh, just put tartaric in it and adjust the the ph via an acid add but it was the first time that i had decided to 
started adding sparkling base in the cellar. I mean, it was just only the second year that I had made sparkling base. Where I was like, oh, well, here's the solution to this. You know, if we're making wines that maybe are a little too high pH, let's just use base, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I was really young in white wine making as well. I mean, I think that that was the first time I'd ever pressed Chardonnay. It was 2016. And 2015 was the first time that I'd made Pinot Gris, white Pinot Gris. And then 16 was also the first year of the carbonic Pinot Gris. But um, 16 was sort of a, a shift year, I suppose. You and, know, like, and was it 2014 or 13 that you had your first release of Pinot? 13 was the first vintage. Yeah. Uh, and those wines did not come out, though, until the summer of 2015. Mm. So it took a little while. And, um, you know, the 13s and the 14s were very, very traditional in the style that I'd been taught how to make wine. Yeah. We got um, one of them right here. Oh, look at that. Yeah. That 2014. Ridge? Yeah. That's Mason Ridge, isn't it? Yeah. Man, that is awesome. Hell yeah, um, dog. Look at that. Back um, in the day. Yeah. Uh, dude, you don't even want to know how much I was paying for labels back then. um with all that gold foil oh man but no wax top no wax top you know that was like uh, oh natural yeah on this guy (laughs) no um you know i was really heavily against foils back then um and thought that they looked like shoulder pads i was just like oh what's the point of this you know and now i hugo boss in the 1980s Right, Just big old shoulder pads. <laughs> then Richard Gere comes in there with the Versace <laughs> and like, you know, yeah. blows the whole thing out of the water. But you know, the yeah, I was really against foil at that point, and um, had it was a you know, I mean, I didn't really have a reason for it. I thought that I thought aesthetically, like it wasn't very pleasing, and it seemed sort of old school. And maybe that was the first glimpse into, like, I want to come at things from a different angle, oddly. Uh, And later I realized that it's probably best to cover up the cork um, because, you know, the longer that these bottles lay around that have no sort of uh, foil or wax on them at all, you know, you can see the cork getting dirty and they are porous, um, you know, to a certain degree. And, And it just seems like, a you know, bacterially it could be kind of a nightmare over time. Um, yeah. You know, and you want to do the best that you can to sort of protect the wines. Um, obviously, the Marini wines don't have anything on them either, but but those are meant to be drunk pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, totally. You mentioned that like for several years you had made red wine before you jumped into making white wine in 2016. Was that like a big shift? Like suddenly. Was it, was it like starting again at the bottom of the learning curve or what aspects were you able to kind of bring over from the red wine making to the white wine making? I made white wines as an intern um, and had made a bunch of different white wines because the fellow that I worked for, Chris Berg, who has a, a winery here in um, Yamhill Carlton called Roots, um, also had several custom crush clients in the facility that we were in that crushed fruit from Southern Oregon and parts of Washington. Um, So, you know, we had made, obviously, kind of your typical Willamette Valley varietals, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. He had some Milan de Bourgogne that he was making. Uh, But then we also made, like, Roussan and 
Marson and Viognier from Washington. And um, so I kind of got a sense during that time period of, of uh, what it's like to crush white fruit and how the, the different grapes look and feel and react in the press. Um, but a lot of that had sort of drifted by the wayside and, and I was kind of back to square one. I mean, I pressed one ton of Pinot Gris in 2015. Um, and, uh, it started in barrel. It started out really good. I'm not totally sure what happened. I was maybe it was, I mean, I know that that was the first year that I was starting to begin to, uh, trying to do Sansouf wines and I was probably a little too cavalier. And then I put that wine through a plate and frame uh, filter at like a 10 micron, which is a pretty, you know, coarse filtration. But uh, I did it sans soup. And so I completely oxidized it, like going through the filter. And it, I was like, why does this smell like pickle juice? I mean, it just like brought out the yeah. worst elements of it. And yeah. Thank God, like, you know, it was only 50 cases and got kind of consumed yeah. quickly. And back then, I mean, it seems like... I know that it's not that long ago, five years ago, but back in 2015, 2016, it seems like you could get away with a lot more flaw in the wine. Yeah. Like natural wine at that time period was, um, you know, oh, these are crazy. Yeah. It was just so you new. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And like, it was like anything goes. Um, and I think, you know, some people liked the weirdness and the volatility of that wine, but I knew that it was, you know, not my best effort. Um, and the Pinot yeah, but that's was, how you learn, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, that it's one way to learn. I mean, I think it's sort of a, <laughs> a strange, very expensive way to learn. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of a strange way to learn, um, to just start a winery, you know, kind of, and start pressing stuff and, figuring it out on the side, um, as opposed to, you know, the other way of doing it is obviously years of internship and, um, you know, kind of working your way up the chain at, uh, whatever sort of size winery you happen to be, mm -hmm. uh, working at. And I'd done a little bit of both. I mean, I interned with Chris while I was making my other wines for the first couple of years, you know? Um, and, um, you know, for the most part, like, uh, I had some knowledge, but yeah, I mean, I figured a lot of it out along the way, especially, you know, in 15, when I started doing Carbo, because, uh, that was not something that Roots did or that we did for clients either. I mean, it was, yeah. it was a technique that was not at the time used in the Valley really at all. Um, I mean, I think some people had had done it or had talked about it as kind of semi-carbonic and there were a few people that were starting to experiment with it but i think we were all sort of doing it on the same scale and then you know when mine worked i realized pretty quickly that it was kind of the the way to go for me when you when you say semi-carbonic are you meaning that you didn't add co2 to the tank you just kind of sealed it shut and let it do its thing or uh, i mean i think that there's a there's varying ways of, of doing that when i refer to it in my wines currently you know like um a lot of the new wines that you'll see that david mayfield just brought in they arrived i think yesterday the saint reginald wines the back of the labels now say semi-carbonic maceration. And that's because I do a full carbonic where the tank is actually sealed up 
it's sparged out with CO2. But then the, the vessel is opened up and uh, there's usually a pump over at the very beginning to sort of put some oxygen throughout the ferment, get some, get that wine over the grapes uh, and then start pigeage um, twice a day generally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe a pump over as needed after that. Uh, but if I can help it, just sort of foot treading. And, uh, and that's like sitting on the side of the tank as well, or the side of the bin, whatever I happen to be doing the fermentation in. Um, I don't actually physically jump my whole body into the tank. Some people do, you know I mean? Some people yeah. are like in there, but I'm just trying in there like swimwear, baby. Yeah. I mean, they just put on their trunks and jump in. Um, I'm trying my best to one, not break the stems, which is the main reason for, for the foot treading, you know, as opposed to using a punch down tool. Um, and what's the, what's the reason for that? Breaking up the stems, what would that do? It releases sap. Um, you know, even when you've got a, a lignified stem, you know, if you've got a cold vintage and the stems come in and they look pretty brown on the outside, um, if you break that stem open, nine times out of ten, it's going to be green. I mean, it is an incredibly difficult uh, thing to – you've got to let that stuff hang forever for it to actually fully go brown on the inside. Um, I think like it's possible that some of the vineyards like that Nate Reddy uses at IU are capable of doing it because he's got a Albarino vineyard that he says the vineyard actually defoliates before they pick it. Really? uh, Because it takes so long for it to get ripe. But out there in the gorge, they don't have the sort of rain pressure that we have here in the valley. For me, it's about trying to not break the stems. Um, it's just about trying to get the tannin out of the stems you know, and out of the outside of the stems. So if you use your feet and you sort of, you know, can work your way around and feel the stems and just move the, the fruit around, you know what I mean? It's yeah. so much more gentle than using a punch down tool. And so that's that's kind of the vibe there. Something that I've been noticing on social media recently, um, and it's not like a lot, you know, but it's a a few kind of people that I might consider to be tastemakers or wine buyers. There's starting to be a little bit of a reaction against carbonic wine, um, like a like the pendulum swinging against the glue. Like people yeah. not wanting just like yeah, people, super swaffy, chuggable. People asking for more tannin. You mm-hmm. know, people asking for, uh, I mean, you know, I and I, I agree with that. Like, I think that it's probably going to happen naturally. But I don't think that carbonic is the reason for that, you know, to pin it on carbonic or to say that the carbonic fermentation is uh, lazy or um, a easy route to something, um, I think is sort of an absurd notion um, because it's actually more difficult in some ways if you do it right, because you have to completely trust the process. You know, if you're closing something up in a tank for that long, you know, with the Marini wines, like somewhere between seven, nine, 
actually, you know, this year that was much longer on the orange wines because they were so low alcohol. Um, I decided to leave them in a little longer. Carbonic for me was a way of getting around um, what I felt like was a ubiquitous style in the in the Willamette Valley. But I, you know, I think it, it's important to understand that carbonic maceration can provide tannin if you leave it in there long enough. You know, I don't think anybody thinks that LaPierre Morgone is a um, glue-glue wine. Yeah. You know, it's softer, but it's not, you know. I think a big part of that reaction, and I'm familiar with that a little bit, is that, you know, I think this idea that you're making a very light, quaffable wine that's meant to be easy and simple, but then turning around and charging $50 for that wine that supposedly was made for just easy, you know, carefree drinking, that's where I think we're losing some people along the way. And that's where we're seeing part of that reaction. Oh, yeah, for sure. I actually drank a wine last night that I won't name, but it's a, a very famous producer in the natural wine world. And it was about $60 retail. And it tasted like Mirani Carbonic Pinot Noir. <laughs> you know, and, and I was hoping for something with like quite a that's bit of That's the new grip. sales pitch. That's the new sales pitch for Marini, though, right? Is like, hey, you can buy this super allocated sixty dollars retail wine, or you can get my wine for twenty five bucks online. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty close. You know, it definitely lived in the same world, and I was kind of yeah. left wondering, like, what in the world the point of that was. But you know, it's not really about like our stuff tasting as good. But I do find it uh, strange, you know, that the prices of of some natural wines, especially the the really low tannin, low structure wines, have have jumped into these crazy money categories. I mean, at least I find, you know, I think a sixty dollar bottle of wine is still really expensive. I sort of bought it because I'd never see it out in public. Yeah, and kind of bought it on a whim after uh, a shop that supports me had just bought a bunch of my wine. You know, so yeah. in in yeah, turn, you the like, yeah, yeah, in turn, I was like, actually. Let me get one of these from you before I leave. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that structure is any more or less bad uh, than or more or less, um, you know, high minded than glue glue. I think it's um, when you sell a lack of structure as something that's like carefree and like meant to not be taken seriously, but then charge a very serious price for it. I sure. think that's where we're losing people. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's, it's just kind of a, I would hate to see um, carbonic fermentation as a method kind of get thrown out with the bathwater um, because it's, it would be a shame, you know, traditional fermentation <laughs> is no more or less difficult than carbonic. I mean, it, it's not hard to, to stem a bunch of grapes and um, pump that wine over or punch that wine over a pigeage or whatever you want to do, and a fermentation will occur. It's not mm -hmm. rocket science, and it's no uh, better or worse than performing a carbonic fermentation. Um, you know, so I, I find that argument to be a little bit lacking, that somehow it's, it's not as hard. 
Um, you know, or you're not as serious of a winemaker. It's something if you're using it, um, because there are wines that have, I mean, way more pedigree than anything I'm doing that have been using the method for decades. Did you find yourself having to defend your use of carbonic early on, like those first couple of years that you were building it? No, I've just now started realizing that maybe people are, um, are starting to, see it as as um something that might could be considered um i don't know if lazy is necessarily the right word you know but um i it's the first time recently that i've started to notice that maybe there's a backlash against the style within the psalm community i mean i think it will take years if ever for that to actually disseminate out into the drinking public yeah. Um, you know, and I will defend to the teeth like that if something smells great and tastes great, who cares how you got to it? Yeah. You know, as long as the the vineyards are farmed with um with intention and farmed organically, uh there's not um there's not a lot that you can say beyond like how does the wine make you feel? You know, and if yeah. you want more structure then there's there are choices. I mean, there's no know. shortage of very structured wines being made. So yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, you got your I, pick I, of the litter. I don't know if this is ultimately a conversation that is about natural wine, um, where we're at in the moment. You know, in the sort of glue glue party nature of the wines. You know, what I mean, and people wanting to become a little more focused and a little more serious. Uh, Maybe it's a conversation about it's time for natural wine to grow up, you know? Well, I think I think there's a lot of interesting things in there, right? Because there's also that idea that natural wine, I was talking to someone the other day, and so often when we define natural wine, you know, or when a lot of people try and define natural wine, they immediately just jump into stereotypes of what natural wine tastes like or feels like or looks like, yeah. you know, where... Rather than describe natural wine as wine made with minimal intervention that's probably spontaneously fermented, rather than using those words, they're like, natural wine is fizzy, cloudy, you know, low alcohol wine, you know, people immediately jump to those stereotypes. And within that, you're dealing with that stereotype that natural wine is low alcohol. Now, certainly a lot are, but then you've got producers like Paolo Bea, right? You've got yeah. fucking you've got amazing wines. Grabner. A lot you've of the, got uh, even in the U.S. You've got absentee wine, right? Like that winery is making delicious juice, and it's relatively speaking high octane. You know, oh yeah. So, I mean, and Tony Katuri for years has made. I mean, his wines are all fifteen percent, and yeah. um, San Souf and completely organic farming. You know, I mean, not what you would expect. Um, you know, and I think that that's just part of kind of the the ebb and the flow of, of the global palate, I suppose, you know, like yeah. right now people have been drinking more low tannin juice. Um, but I do see it kind of shifting and the moving back and forth, but I yeah. don't think that the carbonic as a technique is any more or less uh, relevant than traditional fermentation methods. You know, I came mm. to winemaking through tasting. Mm. You know, I, I was working at a wine bar here in, in Portland. Well, I actually live in McMinnville now, but 
uh, I was working at a wine bar in Portland uh, 12 years ago that was very short-lived, small plate place early, early uh, on in the sort of like culinary revolution of, of Portland. And tasted a little bit. The, the wine list was all Pacific Northwest. And so that was kind of where I developed my palate and my love for uh, for Pacific Northwest Pinot Noir in particular. But then I moved back to Texas for a couple of years to work on a, a record with a friend of mine. Um, I was a musician when I was younger. We, we, were, we were writing um, music in this old Bible college. I mean, it's like a fantastic four-story limestone building out in the middle of nowhere, a uh, tiny, tiny town called Tawakana. I mean, it's a village called Tawakana. And it's uh, it's got a really cool history. It's like one of those towns that time forgot. You know, it was, um, I think, at the turn of the, the 19th century, it was actually on the ballot to be the state capital of Texas. Really? That's bonkers. And uh, it's because it has the highest elevation point between Houston and Dallas. Um, and in the end, it was, which otherwise is a very flat area. Totally. So it's, yeah. it's a limestone. Um, it's in, actually in limestone County. There's a limestone quarry. Uh, years later, I was like, man, if it wasn't like a hundred percent humidity here all the time, this would be a hell of a place <laughs> to plant grapes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but you know, we worked on music there and eventually, um, I ended up in Dallas uh, for a couple of years in advertising. And during that time period, um, I had kept up my sort of fascination with wine, but was just going to tastings, you know, and going to shops and had actually started going to so many of them that I started to get to know the reps. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. I mean, like they knew, we knew each other by name and like, um, I was going to tastings that were not, I mean, not natural wine tastings by any means, you know I mean? Just like tons of Bordeaux and um, California wine and just like whatever they had around. Like I was not. Yeah. Just exposing your palate to a lot of new wines. Yeah. You know, and this, there was a shop um, in Dallas that my friend Paul owned and I wish that I could remember the name of it, but they were putting on tastings there every Friday night, almost. Um, And I mean, they would throw these tastings that would be, sometimes it would only be five, six wines, right? You'd go, and then sometimes it would be like portfolio tastings, but they were letting the public into them. Wow. Like when when I look back on it, I think like, man, that was a really special thing because you just don't see that. No uh anymore like i'm you know i'm not even sure that that was i realize how abnormal it is now you know that reps would be in a wine shop pouring their wines for just like the general public yeah for free um, yeah that shit so, doesn't happen anymore and now with coronavirus who knows when like portfolio tastings or anything like that's gonna happen you know oh yeah right like everybody's just like sending off like little two ounce bottles with like, i know right labels and um yeah it's a it's a wild uh obviously wild time we can get into that a little bit later too i mean but this um this time was so special and i just tasted and tasted and tasted and then 
really, I mean, it was down to the point where I was like buying wines and, you know, opening them and sitting with a notebook and like would pour two ounces every 15 minutes, um, you know, and take notes on it. And I never Mm -hmm. did any sort of formal training, but I was just sort of learning how to taste and learning how wine developed and evolved in bottle with air over this time Mm -hmm. period and thought, you know, maybe I want to um, take a wine class or like, uh, like an actual production class. Yeah. So, um, the, the community college in Denison, um, or Sherman, Sherman Denison, they have a viticulture program or they did. Um, because the guy PD Munson, the guy that brought rootstock, to France to graft and um, get rid of, you know, or save, save, yeah, save the vineyard from Loxera. That dude is from Sherman Denison. There we go. I love it. In like, in like East Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they have like, they have a vineyard of all of this like hybrid material out there in Sherman Denison. Um, and they have like a viticulture program and it's all because of this history with PD Munson and the the rootstock. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really crazy to think that like this, you know, these weird hybrid varietals and this stuff that, you know, people don't think about, uh, or give much. Those are the grapes that work for like, uh, humid, humid climates, right? Like Chamberson and shit like that. Blanc Dubois and Black yeah. Spanish and all of these sort of like weird varietals that people don't think much about. But I mean, this was the stuff that ended up saving, you know, the world's most lauded vineyards. Yeah. Um, and so it's <laughs> kind of funny that, um, you know, the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first in that way. Right. Like, the backup two, singers, you know, that's that's what they're there for. Yeah, you know, the, these two things that you would never think go together end up saving the world's most heralded sites. But, you know, in that time period, I um, found out that Neil Newsom was giving fruit to anybody in this class. Uh, and so I like... <laughs> The class was online, and I pretty much went out to Neil's place and picked fruit and stopped going to stop participating in the class and just made like a little bit of wine. I picked like 300 pounds, um, crushed the fruit there like in five gallon buckets, and um, brought it to a midway point between Dallas and, and Lubbock, where Neil was at. and put it into a friend of mine had a restaurant that he had married into. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can I use your cold storage to like store this fruit? I was, uh, I was essentially trying to cold soak it. I was so like, I put, I put this, I was, that's how I thought it was done. You know, I thought that you needed to like cold soak grapes before you uh, let fermentation start, you know? So I, like, well, because if you look there. at like, if you look at like the shit that was being made, like at these, like, big blue chip wineries in California. Yeah. Like that's exactly how it's done. So yeah. I was like, I need, you know, in lieu of, in lieu of uh, big glycol tanks, I need a, I need a, uh, a way to chill these grapes. And so I like threw these five gallon buckets into the the produce cooler and um, hell yeah. 
(laughs) and came back and got them like a week later and then rented a little basket press um yeah from the local brew store and my Mm -hmm. my friend that owned the wine shop uh had made some beer in the past and so we did this thing together and like you know inoculated and did our little punch downs and like um made this sort of i think it was it was like mostly tempranillo but it also had some um cab franc and merlot in it i think but um you know made this little wine and then thought i like this i want to work a real harvest mm-hmm. um and that was 2011 and i got a harvest internship with benton lane in monroe oregon mm-hmm. then i went back to dallas and then ended up in 2012 coming back and um i actually moved back got a uh, internship with chris um and ended up working at a internal marketing you know for a place in portland in 13 mm-hmm. worked with chris again made a little bit of my own wine 14 the same thing 200 cases that's where the bottle that you have is from so i had eight barrels four of those Mm -hmm. went to uh, a blend and two of each went to a single vineyard so i had like 50 cases each of the vineyards that i made and then uh four of those barrels went into a combined blend yeah yeah because i don't think this says on here how many barrels it was oh it's two is you know yeah like 50 cases that's crazy little buddy um yeah which is just bananas you know to like look back on it um 50 cases comes and goes pretty quickly these days yeah. you know but when i made that wine i mean i had real trouble sort of you know it's it's almost harder sometimes to sell 50 cases locally when you are starting out than it is to sell you know, 500 when somebody knows who you are. Yeah, I think, I think Raj Parr, I listened to an interview with him and he said, you know, that inevitably when you start a winery, you're going to spend as much time, if not more time trying to, you know, sell the wine as you did making the wine, you know, you know, I'm sure it's different for a guy like Raj than it might be for someone else. But I, I imagine there's a lot of that that's true, right? You know, you spend so much time, you know, trying to get that wine out there, get it distributed to people. And you said you self-distribute in Oregon, right? I do. And we still do, actually, even um, with where we're at these days, you know, which isn't necessarily like we're not some huge operation, you know, but we are with the best natural wine distributors in the country. Um, but we still in Oregon, keep it in house. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and obviously that, that has its pros and cons, you know, we, we don't put the wines in as many places as we could or should probably in Portland, but we make extra margin and we get to be a little more particular about where they go. You know, I don't pretend to think that we can, you know, say, where the wines end up in Los Angeles or anywhere else. I mean, our distributors do such a excellent job of, of putting the wines in, in the places where we're like, yeah, this makes sense. You know I mean? And I think yeah. that that's, that's partially what finding a, a distributor that fits is about, 
you know, totally. it's finding somebody that you get on with um, that that makes sense on a personal level, but also like their relationships are an extension of the rela- of the relationships that you would like to have. You know, I mean, if they're placing lines in in spots where you're like, "Ooh, I would never want to hang out in here," yeah, you know, it's probably not a fit. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, um, it's one thing to sell the wines, and it's another thing to sell the wines in the right places. Mm-hmm. Um, no, for sure. You know, yeah, there's got to be the right context for the wines. You know, otherwise, the, you know, the people aren't going to get it. Yeah, I mean, and are you ultimately boils down to story? Does this feel right? For your story you know mm-hmm. um it, it's an amazing feeling to be connected with people that allow you access to come in and be in relationship with people in los angeles like you know the momofuku group or kismet or you know in new york jenny just like rolls out the red carpet and you can pretty much like pour your wines for whoever you want uh because mm-hmm. they they trust you know, the, the palette of, of the distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you're pretty much, uh, welcomed in as, as trusted family at that point, you know, which is great. And if you're just kind of like with whoever, you know, I mean, it's, it's a different mindset. Um, I think is, is what it is. And you know, the natural wine community well, it also depends on the goal too. It's the goal, you know, of the winery. Are they just trying to move cases or are they really trying to tell a story? Yeah. You know, and for natural wine, right? For smaller production wineries where the story does matter, you know, where you're really trying to say something and express something, then it does matter what distributor you're with because you're not trying to just case stack it somewhere at a grocery store. You're trying to be in the right space. And I think more than that, you know, you're, you're actually trying to be in relationship with the people that drink your wines. You know, uh, if you're just trying to make the best tasting thing at the lowest price, that is a, that is a tough road to walk, you know, and not, and not one that I would want to be a part of, uh, for many reasons, but I mean, that's a tough road to walk because when you're only competing on taste and price, you're, you're not allowed to tell your story and you're, you're sort of boxing yourself out from true connection, which in the end is what's happening when people drink wine to begin with. People drink wine around their table. Um, you know, they drink wine with people that they love that they want to tell stories with. And if your wine has a story and somehow fits into the reason why you're a part of their evening, then you become part of their life and their story in a way that um, that is just not possible when it's only about, this is a really good tasting rosé for $9. Well, I think your direct-to-consumer business that you've been doing is an extension of that. You know, it's developing that relationship with people and you seem to be super successful at it. I mean, you go to your website and you buy a bottle of Marigny or, you know, there's a relationship that's developed with that consumer and you. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, we are very, like, high touch when it comes to our, like, relationships with the people that buy our wines if if you email you know the yo at marini wines email it's going to be me or my business partner that gets back to you and it's not going to be a we don't have like a 
uh, a template of responses in a drop down box, you know, for questions. We actually sit there and like respond to each and every question, which can be 50 plus emails a day sometimes. Um, and we respond to those people as that individual, you know, and sure, there are some like there are some answers that are more rote than others, I suppose. But um, you know, it's our hope that that person writes back and then we can write them back again. You know what I mean? Because we want them to know that we're real people um, that are highly invested in not only making the best wines that we can and, and um, taking care of our vineyards and our community as best that we can, but also that we honestly, truly care about their experience with each bottle that they buy from us. And I think that we've seen that direct-to-consumer model shift a little bit from maybe the early aughts to now, right? We've got smaller producers like you, like Martha Stoneman. We've got these producers that are creating meaningful relationships, you know, and maybe moving towards a majority DTC model. And I don't know if that was something that like you initially envisioned for the project or whether that was just organic growth that came from your time self-distributing in Oregon and then as you moved beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was more organic growth. And, uh, you know, the the DTC growth is 100% to do with, in 2018, I took uh, partners in the winery, in the mm-hmm. Marini specifically, and we left Sparkle Motion in St. Reginald out of the equation, which I think is a really good thing because we got to see the difference, you know, kind of uh, use the other two brands as a control group in a sense, um, even though those wines are at a different price point. You know, we focused on growing the Marini. Uh, my business partner has a advertising agency, sort of. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're sort of a, um, a digital business development uh, with an advertising component. Um, and, you know, they build these really beautiful websites and uh, help people kind of navigate online sales. Obviously, like wine, online sales for wine, is fraught with all sorts of regulation. And that that's a challenge in its own right. But, uh, you know, we are navigating that. And um, the main thing is that we get to be in complete control of telling the story. Um, yeah. You know, obviously uh, I think that there's a, there is a space for both, uh, you know, in distribution, um, you know, in uh, terms of like buying it from bottle shops, restaurants, buying it from us, there's space for all of it. Um, I would never want to be a hundred percent DTC because then you're sort of closing off the, the castle walls a little bit, you know what I mean? And then you become slowly the thing that you're maybe rallying against, you know, which is this old guard. We have the keys to the kingdom. You cannot come in. You must receive an invitation. You know, I think for us, the, the DTC component um, is really more about like anybody can get the wines. You're welcome to. And anyone can get the wines at, you know, a fair price. That's the other thing. Yeah, you're welcome to them. You know, we only distribute in five markets. We distribute in Oregon, Washington, California, Texas, and New York. Um, We 
are currently, we used to be in Louisiana and we're currently working on being in Louisiana again. And we've got a few other, I mean, we could distribute in more markets, certainly, but, um, you know, we like building a presence just directly, you know, so if, if you're in Ohio, you know, and you want our wines, like you can just pop on the website and they'll be at your front door in like five days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's great. I mean, you get some, na- you, you've gotten some national exposure, you know, shout outs in Bon Appetit magazine. So that person in Ohio, you know, seeing that shout out in there can then go to the website and then buy the bottle and solid presence online with social media. People can see that wherever they are in the U.S., and then bring those bottles to them. A hundred percent, you know, and, and I do think that, um, that, like I say, I cannot stress enough that the relationship with our distribution partners is, is key. It, it makes, they make us look good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we, uh, I love being with the distribution partners that we've chosen because I feel like the people that we are doing that with are the best at what they do. Do you want to um, shout any of them out right here oh, on, yeah, on totally, the pod? We've got totally. we've got David Mayfield here in Tejas, based and out of Waco. Who, that's who we're with in Texas is David Mayfield. Um, we're with Jenny and Francois in New York. Um, obviously, like legendary uh, natural wine importer, um, Amy Atwood in California, and she, you know, pretty much anybody in the the new California wine book, you know, that you've seen around that kind of came into public consciousness five years ago or so. Um, that book uh, is pretty much 80%, you know, Amy Atwood. And then a lot of those same people, like I was saying, are with Jenny. And Walden Selections in Washington, um, who have done an amazing job. And they also represent Jenny's book, and they represent Zev's book as well. So just they, back-to-back bangers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we've been really fortunate, you know, and um, to me, uh, it's it's an approval of the work that we do that people of that pedigree would want to be involved with us. Hell yeah. You know, it's you know, it's one thing to make wines and sell them all online. It's another thing to have the people that have told this story through almost, you know, in Jenny's case, decades uh, say, we approve of these wines. We want to sell these wines. And, you know, that for us is an honor. Yeah, it's a validation of everything you've been doing. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's funny, you were talking about the new wave of California producers that have come up in the past, like, five or six years. And we could say that there's a similar thing going on kind of in parallel in Oregon, in Willamette Valley, right? You know, you've got, you know, the old guard, the OGs that have been doing it for a while in Oregon, and then we've got this new group of winemakers that are making wine. You, Nate Reddy's up there, you know, albeit not in maybe the same area where you are. Yeah. We've got a bunch of producers. We've got Chad Stock up there. A lot of those producers are working with other varieties, and you seem to be doubling down a little bit on Pinot Noir. Yeah. You know, it's it was funny, like when I first um, started out, we uh, I went over with Chris uh, in 2014. We moved into a facility that was different than the facility we were in in 2012 and 2013. Uh, we moved into a facility called Medici, which is in the Shahala Mountain AVA. And it was uh, it's on a vineyard, uh, which is, I believe is about 40 acres. 
and it was planted in the the 70s like 74 i believe and it was planted from grafts that dick erath grew that dick grew in a greenhouse and then gave to hal and so the entire vineyard is own rooted from original plant material from you know the original guys and a lot of the older vineyards here in Oregon are done that way. Um, and we actually, to this day, still put in sticks. You know, we've got a thousand cuttings of Milan that we're putting into the ground. Hell yeah. And we're, that's going in own rooted, no grafting, you know, and that's sort of the old way of doing it. And yeah, it's dangerous. And, you know, yeah, you can like possibly get phylloxera. But, um, you know, I, don't, I think that there's nothing quite as valuable as that sort of, you know, straight to the mother rock source, like from the actual clusters all the way down to the to the tap root is one plant. You know, it's it's never been cut. It's and this is um, I realize that a lot of my colleagues have have grafted stuff, you know, I mean, and, and I don't. No, I'm not against grafting. I'm just saying I really like uh, the idea of own rooted vine systems. You know, it it's uh, as if you have the room, if you can find a place to plant. You know, a lot of people have come in to vineyards that just have tons of Pinot Noir or Pinot Gris. And they just they're like, we don't need this. This isn't what we do. Um, and so then, you know, grafting becomes, you know, your best option. I always tell, you know, people um, that gripe and grumble about like, oh, too much Pinot. I'm like, well, you buy a vineyard. <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's up to us. If we want different stuff in the ground as younger producers, we're going to have to find a way to put it in the ground. It's asking a lot of a, of a property owner to graft or plant whatever the sort of hot thing is at the moment and say, yeah, we'll commit to this obscure varietal for a decade. Yeah. Um, if you'll, if you'll graft over, if you'll put it in, um, you know, I think it's, it's much better uh, if you can figure it out, you know, it's much better to say, we are going to commit to putting this in the ground ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're going to take the risk on it. We're going to figure it out. Which is what um, Nate's doing, right? I mean, on yeah, his end, on his property. A hundred percent. You know, and, and I mean, what Nate is doing at Hayu is the most fascinating wine farming experiment in, in the Pacific Northwest, no doubt. Um, hmm. You know, it's one thing to, to let your fruit get rained on and then stem it and inoculate it. You know, um, it's another thing when you're going... 100% whole cluster, not using a stemmer at all. Um, and you cannot have any sort of mildew in the fruit at all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I made the decision to pick early. Um, I think for the Marini wines, uh, it, in the white wines, um, the Chenin Blanc that I made this year for the first time was, is like, Oh my God. So when does incredible. that fucking hit? This fall, Mar dude. Oh man, Marini Shannon sounds so it, fucking good be right a now. Reginald wine. Oh, Saint Reggie. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, the 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 difference is like 
um, the St. Reginald wines are the the wines that will, you know, they just sort of live in a different ether, mm-hmm. you know, um, things that are just so ethereal, things that are so good can kind of get transferred into the St. Reginald category. And generally those wines aren't above 200 cases. Yeah. You know, as we're like, we're making a thousand plus cases of carbonic wines per cuvee these days. Um, and um, so the, there'll be like, I mean, 125 cases of that Shannon, maybe, maybe a hundred. Wow. Um, yeah. This is like none of it. Uh, we also made, but we did make Alagote this year as well. Um, and I skin, there's like over 200 cases of that. I skin contacted half of it, direct pressed half hmm. of it. And we're actually going to combine those back together. Hell yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so. The acids so, on, on that one's got to be fucking electric. On the Shannon or the Aligote? On the Aligote, yeah. Yeah, both. I mean, I think I picked that. The Aligote was picked at like 18 bricks. <laughs> hmm. So it's like, wow. you know, it's like 10% alcohol. Fucking Gatorade, um, my dude. Oh, it's so, it's, yeah. I mean, the the skin contact fermentations are, it sort of smells a little bit like Werther's Original, Grandfather's Ooh. Pockets, you know. Oh, my um, God. And then the, the, the drug press stuff is very uh, beautiful and glassy. We actually did get the Aligote again this year. Uh, we did not get the Shinnin, unfortunately, but we got the Aligote again this year. And um, uh, we're going to direct press it all. Um, and I think that's something that's, you know, uh, kind of a learning experience, right? Like you, and it's a little bit of a sad thing sometimes, right? But it's it's also um, part of the process is like, you make decisions and, and you live with them for a year. Um, you know, would, would I have preferred to direct press all of that Aligote and put, put it into 25% new wood and like make some sort of like banger out of it? Yeah. But, you know, that's not what happened. You know, I thought it would be a cool skin contact line and it, it is, but I also realized that that wine is probably at its best as a direct press line, you know, and you start to realize these things, the only way to do it is to just do it. You know, um, there's no, that's the one thing that I've learned over the years with this is tiptoeing is, um, is not the way to go. You know what I mean? If if you can't commit to a ton, if you can't commit to the idea of losing a ton, don't even bother. I mean, if Hmm. you can, you know, you can probably do a half ton, you know, and kind of figure it out. But like the kinetics of a fermentation just seem to work better at a time. Hmm. You know, I feel like I know more about what a wine is going to be like at scale if we can do one time. Yeah. You know, do no tiptoeing. All all in. All in, you know. Um, And that's not to say that that you can't do things on a smaller scale. You know, I mean, I, I in no way want to discourage people from um from experimenting on small scales from trying things uh on small scales um but i think um for me i've i've realized that uh it's best it's almost more of a mental exercise you know what i mean like yeah. to when you say i'm going all in on this 
um, and it could be financially disastrous, then yeah. you, when you've committed like that, then you're truly trusting your instincts. You know, if you have just used so little of it as to say, oh, it doesn't matter if it works out, then it's probably not going to work out. <laughs> you know what I mean? You kind of yeah. have to, I think, go for it and commit to it to really get to the truth of it. You got to self-release like Frank Ocean. You got to just put out that blonded. Oh, here you know? we go. Look at that. Look at that. That. <laughs> that there you go you know you just got it you got to drop you know you got to drop blonded the day after your last def jam release and then self-release oh. that new project and let people know what's up so you gotta go yeah. all in so you know we had talked about this previous i know um i feel like half of our communication is you know responding to like memes. a wine boat and then it's a frank ocean meme you know <laughs> yeah uh frank's my dude you know, I just, I, uh, I love have it. Have you ever seen him live in concert? I haven't. You know, I could have seen him on the Channel Orange tour in Dallas in like Oh my God. And I didn't go for some reason. <sighs> I can't even remember why. Whatever reason you could possibly provide, it's not it's, a good reason. That, no, it's that's not. Like, that's like my dad, like passing on seeing Jimi Hendrix back in Boston in like the 1960s, like early 60s, being like, ah, I can see him again next time he's in town. Yeah. That's totally. what, that's our generation when, when we're talking to our kids, like I could have seen Frank on the Frank, on the Channel Orange tour, but I figured he would tour again at some point. Epic fail, you know, yeah. it's like epic oh fail. Um, but, you know, the, I think here's the thing is... <laughs> I wasn't totally convinced that I liked Channel Orange. I um, It took me a little while to kind of get behind it. I, I actually went back to Channel Orange um, after I completely fell in love with Blonde. Really? Okay, was, so you weren't yeah. like from the jump, like back in the odd future days, you weren't fucking with Frank, you know, when he released Nostalgia Ultra or anything like that? No, no, I, I actually kind of, I mean, I was listening to Channel Orange when it came out, but, um, you know, I thought like there was some cool stuff on there and I was like, oh, this is kind of like, this is kind of cool. <laughs> but yeah. I, I wasn't like floored and like, I knew that a lot of my friends were and I wasn't able to sort of find the, you know, records maybe hit you in different ways at different times. No, for sure. And I wasn't, and I wasn't able to find the the connection. But then, like, when Blonde came out, um, it just, like, hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. You know, um, I thought thematically the material was, um, you know, maybe there is a through line with Channel Orange, but, like, I loved the storytelling with, with Blonde and that it seemed to be a, a record about um, love triangles and, missed opportunities and yeah. longing. Um, He's very good at creating vibes. I, I will say that about Frank, like creating just kind of like, like a, a, a throbbing atmospheric album, you know, especially with uh blonde, like, yeah. When that album came out and it's like you said, you have to be like in the right headspace. And I had like gone to Spain and I was there for about a month 
visiting first Jerez and then up in Rioja for uh, checking out Harvest in both places and just driving through kind of the Sierra Cantabria and listening to the beat switch on nights like that yeah. will forever be like seared into my memory. Like, I think that he took all of the like, you know, storytelling that he had created on Channel Orange with these like amazing little vignettes with songs like, you know, Super Rich Kids or Pyramids and then created that more like emotional vibing that he had on blonde like super fucking yeah sick, so. and i think the thing that i that i like about it and the thing that you know we were talking about how does it translate into the winemaking is um every year that i make wine i'm trying to take something away you know what i mean like i think that there's this uh there's this instinct that we add things as we get better at something mm-hmm um and that's kind of the opposite with natural wine um i think as we get better as producers as we get better as farmers we're taking something away you're like like rick rubin reduced by rick rubin you know yeah just super minimalist like pull let's pull this particular um you know idea like let's get down to like two sulfur sprays a year in the vineyard and like no till and just some flowers like you know like let's try to like uh get it to it's it's just it's absolute purposeful core um and anything else you know um is is sort of getting in the way of that um and I think that that's, that's the point of, of natural wine. And I think that that's also the point of really beautiful music sometimes is, is trying to find the purity in something, not necessarily the funkiness or the, the oddness or the leftist uh, views of a thing, but that it's really at its best about finding the truth in a thing and finding the purity in a thing fun stuff well thank you so much for the time i appreciate it Dude, it's really nice to see you let me know when they you start taking pre-orders on the shannon and Alagote. you let me know when that goes down absolutely thanks chris i'll talk to you soon and that is our first episode of the new year Buy all of Andy's wines online at the Marigny, which is the T H E M A R I G N Y dot com and Saint Reginald.com. Saint is just S T, no need to spell it out all the way. And Reginald is R E G I N A L D dot com. Um, yeah. And subscribe to By the Glass wherever you stream your audio content. We are on Spotify, Apple, Google Play. Apparently, we're on Audible. I got a notification about that the other day. So if you want to support me and Jeff Bezos, uh, you can do it that way. Uh, And yeah, cool. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week with another episode of By the Glass.